Lodipopate at large. I'm Lodipopate. Most of the news coming out of the UK these days is about the coronavirus, but something very important took place on December 31st. The transition period for its withdrawal from the European Union, otherwise known as Brexit, officially came to an end. How much of an impact has this had on Britain, its economy, and relations with other European countries and the United States? Joining us now is Michael Patrick McDonald, the author of a number of books, including the American Book Award-winning best-selling memoir, All Souls, A Family Story from Southie, also Easter Rising, A Memoir of Roots and Rebellion. He's been serving as a special correspondent on the show, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hello, Michael. Hey, hey Leonard. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Hasn't the UK already suffered from Brexit? Its economic growth has slowed from 2.4% in 2015 to 1% in 2019. And and government estimates are that Brexit will lower UK growth by up to almost 7% over 15 years. Yeah, and I also think that, um, you know, there's a lot more damage to come to be seen in the the current moment. um, You know, you won't see the full economic impact at the moment because it's a slower part of the year. It's also... You know, the, the entire globe is slowed down because of COVID-19, and and that's had its impact there, surely. But um, we're we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, a lot of kind of disastrous predictions just from the logistical nightmare of, you know, trucks trying to get from, you know, one part of the EU to Ireland or from the EU to the UK and so forth. So then the paperwork involved, so the bureaucracy that I think inspired a lot of the uh, pro-Brexit vote. A lot of a lot of, a lot of Brexiteers were, you know, railing against the bureaucracies of, of Brussels and, and so forth. But the bureaucracy has been compounded and the paperwork's been compounded. And that disaster is, you know, the slowing down that happens with what's called the land bridge, which is the mm-hmm. mainland U- UK, Great Britain, the slowing down of movement of, of uh, goods and services is going to be disastrous economically, even even more than we've seen in the past um, few weeks. Isn't the Republic of Ireland uh, a positive recipient of all of this? Many businesses had to move their headquarters, uh, and international companies are less likely to use London as an English-speaking entry into the EU economy. Barclays moved 5,000 clients to its Irish uh, subsidiary, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, and Morgan Stanley switched 10% of their clients, and uh, Bank of America transferred 100 bankers to its Dublin offices. So, right. um, uh, so suddenly, uh, the the whole idea of a unified Ireland becomes uh, a a non-issue, or becomes an issue, doesn't it? Right, and this is a little bit of blowback from historic colonization of the island of Ireland by uh, Britain. Um, It's because of colonization that the island of Ireland, uh, you know, was forced to speak English and Mm -hmm. and therefore it's the, you know, it's the primary language. So it's, it's, uh, it's not a huge move to move over to the next English speaking um, center of Dublin. And uh, so that's an interesting kind of irony that that's taken place. Um, And it has led to, a lot of, um, you know, just the behavior of uh, Britain in the Brexit negotiations since 2016 um, has 
has kind of reignited a lot of, um, say, Irish Irish nationalism across the island, where you know Irish nationalism and republicanism would be strongest in the north of Ireland among um, the Catholic nationalist Republican population. It's kind of been reignited across the island of Ireland because of a lot of Britain's behavior, a lot of the kind of condescension um, toward Ireland, the disregard of Ireland, the disregard of the Good Friday Agreement and the importance of there now being a you know, barely noticeable border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland in the South. All that disregard and kind of, um, you know, kind of pompousness has reignited uh, a lot of uh, pro-Irish unity sentiment across the island of Ireland and not just in the north of Ireland. Well, didn't the uh, part of the Brexit, uh, Brexit agreement involve the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland? Yeah. Um, well, you know, one of the so so just to backtrack a little bit, the the northern six counties of Ireland, the you know the the, the the six counties of Ireland of the island of Ireland that remain a part of the United Kingdom that did not get independence a um, hundred years ago uh, from Britain uh, that did not decolonize but have been attempting through both arms as well as um, the ballot box to to move toward independence in the United Ireland. That six counties of what's called Northern Ireland. Vote in the in the Brexit vote voted um, in a great majority to remain part of the European mm-hmm. Union. So I think it was um, 54 percent or something, 54 percent, which is a pretty good majority. And it also means that this, you know, this place called Northern Ireland, the six counties of the north of Ireland, uh, have well initially when when the when the the gerrymandered state was created a hundred years ago. Um, it was created to maintain a Protestant, Unionist, Loyalist majority, i.e. loyal to the Crown, um, pro-Union with Great Britain, and though that would be the Protestant population that would be, for the most part, beneficiaries of the colonization of Ireland, and particularly the colonization of the North in Ulster. Um, historically, the Protestant Unionist uh, Loyalist population would be uh, two-thirds uh, initially, to one-third Catholic, nationalist, Republican. In recent years, that's evened out to about 50-50 Catholics. Uh, you know, the Catholic population ha- has grown a lot, and the Protestant population has shrunk. But um, what that's meant uh, recently, so with the Brexit vote, if, 50, if, a, if a majority of people voted to remain part of the European Union, so, so Protestant Unionist loyalists would tend to be very pro-Britain, very pro-Union, very pro-border, very anti-immigrant, very conservative in every way, um, economically as well as socially. But that population, the Protestant Unionist loyalist population, you would assume uh, have all gone, uh, you know, would have all voted pro-Brexit. So 54% of the population in Northern Ireland voted to remain part of the European Union. That means that not only did probably most, almost all nationalist Catholics Republicans in the north of vote to remain part of Europe, but also some Protestants did. And we call them Protestants just for shorthand, but it's really, um, you know, it's it's a cultural identification. It's the descendants of the, the, the colonists, rather, the, the colonized. And also would tend to be pro-Union and pro-Britain and all that. But that would mean that a certain population among that, uh, the Protestant, uh, what was once the majority, became kind of 
um, is an increasing minority, that, that a good number of those people also voted to remain part of Europe. So who was that? Some of it would, would be um, some of the, the farmers uh, that of, of Northern Ireland, the Protestant farmers, uh, landowners who benefited from subsidies, from European Union subsidies. But it would also include, I believe, a large population of younger, more progressive, especially socially progressive people who happen to be from Protestant families that are not obsessed with the union with Great Britain, that are also um, not very fond of the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, which is a very conservative, right-wing, anti-LGBTQ, anti-choice party and, and racist party, quite frankly. A lot of the younger, like people who happen to be born into Protestant families, but they're younger and educated and 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 tend to be more progressive, they would have also voted to remain part of the European Union. They would be, um, they would also be a population that benefited from uh, membership in the European Union because for them, say you're a young kind of progressive person from a Protestant Unionist loyalist family, and you're you want to get the hell out of there. <laughs> a good pl- a good way to get the hell out would be to go to Europe, and so there was you know free movement uh, to Europe and to the universities. Um, with the Erasmus um, scheme and so forth. The Erasmus scheme allowed for um, university students to, to move freely as well. So, so you can, I, I, I would say that a, a big part of it would be um, an increasing number of um, Protestants who are not of the old ways, who are not um, obsessed with the Union, who are not right-wing, and who are not evangelical. I mean, the DUP is an evangelical party, so it's important to keep that in mind as well. So there are so many elements to all of this that in, involve both social conservatism and as well as fiscal conservatism um, on, the, on the part of the uh, Protestant Unionist loyalist population historically. But of course, that's shifting. So it, it would be, we, we'd have some similar um, scenarios here, I think. With, yeah, with parallels to the United right States. People. Well, right, the, those who... Parallels. Those who voted to stay in the UN live uh, EU. I mean, live primarily in London, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Uh, and uh, most of the pro-Brexit voters were older, working class, afraid of the free movement of immigrants and refugees. Uh, they claimed that citizens of poor countries were taking jobs and benefits. But the uh, the the whole job thing gets very confusing, doesn't it? Because a lot of uh, because there's, for example, Germany is projected to have a labor shortage of three million skilled workers in 2030, and those jobs won't be available to the UK's workers anymore uh, now. Right. Um, and think about, you know, when you think about the populations in terms of, um, you know, uh, working class people being baited with, um, you know, racism and being uh, baited with anti-immigrant um, rhetoric and, and so forth, but they're also the population that's now being the most impacted, I believe, in the UK. Um, if you think about the people that are going to be dealing day in and day out with the annoyances um, at the border, people, you know, truck drivers with, you know, who have to go through all kinds of paperwork now about, you know, especially when dealing with um, animal products and, and the delays that will caused the complete destruction of some animal products and pharmaceuticals, for that matter, um, in the current COVID world we're looking at. Um, 
when you think of the annoyances that they're going to be dealing with on the front lines, on the front lines, the people that are going to be the most impacted will be working class people, of course. And uh, so I don't know how that will shift things. But what's what's amazing is that, like like with many countries uh, in Europe and, and, of course, in our country, you have that duping that happens, that, that – um, you know, the, 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 the situation where very elite people, the likes of Nigel Farage, um, have duped um, a whole lot of the population. And it shouldn't be all blamed, as with this country, I think. It shouldn't be all blamed on working class and poor people. Of course, the, you know, the white nationalist insurrection we saw in the Capitol is turning up lots and lots of wealthy people who stole yeah. the gates there. <laughs> so a woman who anyway, flew I, there on a private plane. <laughs> exactly. And a whole lot of them. I mean, you know. You know, people from family, you know, multi-millionaire families, cleaning companies, and so forth. Um, but you know, I think that sometimes too much of the blame can be relegated to that population, and I think that happens a lot in in Europe and the UK as well. And we leave out this whole huge manipulative hand of you know elite and white elite white people. You know, so. Well, how much so of this is similar there. to what's happened in this country? Is it fair to say that the Brexit is a vote against globalization and immigration? I think, yeah, um, I think the bait, you know, there's a stronger bait with people, uh, you know, that, that's used to, for, you know, the, the, the racist bait, the anti-immigrant bait that's used. And that would, of course, target um, working class white people in particular. Uh, you know, with with all these mythologies about what's going to happen and who's going to, you know, people are taking something that's yours and and should be yours forever and all that kind of crap. But um, but there's also the other element, which is somehow, um, you know, well, we we have of course pro globalist elites and we have anti globalist elites in this world, and um, and the there there are reasons why certain elites in Britain are anti-globalist and and feel that that's going to benefit their capital more. And they've, but they've certainly used the bait of racism and anti-immigrant uh, anti-immigrant uh, sentiment in in the UK, and it's worked. And that's something that's working throughout Europe, not as profoundly as has, as it has, I think, so far with the whole Brexit vote and all that. But what's interesting is that on the island of Ireland. I see that um, it's one of the um, it's really not a dominant uh, movement at all. That kind of movement toward um, anti-globalism, hand in hand with fascism and racism. I don't see that on the island, on the island of Ireland, as much as I see it in other European countries. Um, Were there many immigrants coming to Ireland as there were in other parts of of, uh, the U.K.? More recently, yes. So you saw you saw hints at it here and there, but it would be immediately shut down um, by people who would remind the Irish that uh, you know among European countries we exported more immigrants to the U.S. and to England and to Australia than anyone, and we benefited from that um, as a country, but also as a diaspora. And and I think that reminder has to always kind of um, you know happen. It has there has to be a strong movement to remind people. Um, well, first of all, to debunk all the myths about who's taking what and so forth, but also to remind people like, wait, who are the immigrants here? I mean, no one's been more immigrant than the Irish, you know, and no one's uh, benefited from that in other countries as much as the Irish. I mean, it's a kind of a a unique position among white people. And hopefully that memory 
um, remains the also the memory of being it's you know it's a colonized country. It's the it's the the one European country that was colonized rather than colonizer. And you know it's it, it can be easy to forget that stuff if you're white, right? And the, the whiteness the whiteness thing takes over. But uh, but it's really crucial that people keep reminding. And there are strong movements of people that are constantly about remembering um, where the Irish come from and who they were in the colonial scheme of things as colonized rather than colonizer as immigrant and so forth, and to, to maintain that consciousness. There's been a little bit of a, um, there have been attempts at right-wing movement building in response to COVID. And there have been attempts by people, and they've been squashed as well, they've been relatively small, but it started with a kind of anti-mask movement, and it went, it, it became hand-in-hand hand with anti-immigrant and anti-globalization and, and, you know, moving toward the QAnon stuff. But if you see the, some of the protests that would happen, they're relatively small. Now, we should never disregard small numbers of people because, you know, as we know, everybody kind of disregarded a lot of people, not everybody. A lot of people disregarded the Trump movement in this country. It seemed completely wacky idea, you know, some years back to a lot, to too many people. And so it should never be disregarded when you see even a handful of people, um, you know, outside government buildings, you know, screaming QAnon conspiracies in Dublin. But it has been, for the most part, um, squashed. And and for the most part, uh, you know, in Ireland right now, it's reeling from, from COVID-19. And, you know, and people are tending to pay attention to the science. Uh, but there are small movements. It all goes hand in hand. It's like part of the same... You know, all the, it's it's really interesting because the anti-mask movement is hand in hand with racism, is hand in hand with anti-globalization, and and that's all part of I think a bigger messaging scheme that I'd say the Brexit back to Brexit, the Brexiteers were um, were brilliant at, and and we have to pay attention to that in the future in this country and in countries across Europe. Message Michael Patrick McDonald is my guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, the, uh, hasn't it been conjectured that a customs border might have reignited the troubles in Northern Ireland between the, the mainly Catholic Irish nationalists and, and pro-British Protestants. Uh, it all ended in, in 1998 with the promise of no border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Right, right. But, but a so customs that, border would have forced about 9,300 commuters to go through customs on the way to, to and from work every day and, and, or, and, and to go to school. Exactly. I was in Ireland, North End, South, you know, when there was a border, when there was a militarized border maintained by British soldiers. And it was, you know, there were long lines, of course. People were checked. Um, people were checked for explosives. Um, there was a war between the Irish Republican Army, the provisional Irish Republican Army, and the British state. The British state was working hand-in-hand with loyalist paramilitaries uh, to defeat the Irish Republican Army which was the Nationalist Republican uh, paramilitaries looking to achieve a united um, Irish Republic. And so as a result of that, I mean, this goes back to 100 years ago when this border was created. It was a gerrymandered border. It was created to maintain a Protestant unionist loyalist majority in a certain part of the island of Ireland 
namely the most lucrative part, the part that held the center of the British shipbuilding industry, the part that had some of the most lucrative land and so forth. So it always goes back to money. But, um, but when this border was created, it was created to maintain a Protestant unionist loyalist majority. Um, and in order to do that, they had to cut out, to create Northern Ireland, they had to cut out the most northern county in Ireland, so Donegal is the most northern county on the island of Ireland, and it's actually north of Northern Ireland. So that's how gerrymandered it was, and the reason mm-hmm. they cut it out was because Donegal would create a Catholic, nationalist, Republican majority in the north. They actually count, cut, it, cut out three counties, but Donegal would have been one of the most kind of blatant, in, you know, when we look at the, the gerrymandered aspect of it. If they included Donegal, there would have been a Catholic, nationalist, Republican, anti-Crown, anti-British Union mm. um, majority. So, so it was a gerrymandered state to begin with. So that's important to note. It's been that way for a hundred years. Um, now, of course, there's kind of there's, it's a more fifty-fifty Catholic and Protestant in the six counties of what's called Northern Ireland. And there was a thirty-year war, the Troubles, as it's known, between. The IRA on one hand and British and loyalist paramilitaries on the other. Uh, British border was set up, uh, checkpoints, and one of the pieces, one of the most important pieces to the Good Friday Agreement, which was signed in 1998, was a dissolution of the border. Now, the border would still be maintained in that those six counties uh, that are called Northern Ireland are still part of the United Kingdom. But there would be free travel between the two. There would be no checkpoints. There would be no customs and so forth. Although, wait a and minute. Be- but there, it's interesting that there is a, there are a customs and regulatory uh, border between. There is one between Great Britain and Northern Ireland in the Irish Sea. Exactly. So this applies to the uh, the the two uh, areas on the island of Ireland itself. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, ironically, even though Northern Ireland is part of the UK, um, Great Britain still has a, a customs border with with uh, with the with the Irish Republic. Yes, and 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 now with with Northern Ireland. So just um, to, to remind people too. So when we say Great Britain, it's always even though Northern Ireland is part of the UK. Great Britain refers to England, Scotland, England. and Wales, part of uh, part of the UK. So now there is a, a customs border. So the, the the Brexit deal threatened to bring back a, a, a customs border and a militarized border to the island of Ireland. That would mean British soldiers come back. That would mean that the IRA comes back. That would mean that the war is back. So it was really important for the EU and the UK to negotiate what's come to be known as the Northern Ireland Protocol, which would um, not bring a border back to the island of Ireland that would um, allow free flow of those 9,300 people daily who go, who travel across the, what, the, the kind of invisible border that exists as a result of the Good Friday Agreement, 9,300 travel back and forth daily uh, for trade and work. Um, but part of the Northern Ireland Protocol also meant putting a customs border in the Irish Sea between Northern mm-hmm. Ireland and Great Britain. So that, of course, has inflamed 
the the sentiments of of, of loyalists uh, and unionists and and um, the the kind of PUL population, the Protestant unionist loyalist population, particularly the DUP. So the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, which is the unionist Protestant political party in the north of Ireland, very evangelical party, uh, very conservative in all ways. They worked for Brexit. They worked. Uh, to get the Brexit, to get Northern Ireland to vote for Brexit. It failed. There was a lot of dark money involved in the DUP's campaign um, for Brexit. It failed. A majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to remain part of Europe. Um, the DUP um, is, of course, was a, is, of course, really uh, up in arms over the dissolution of the the border, that there won't be a return. They would love to see a return to a militarized border. Keep in mind, the DUP never voted for the Good Friday Agreement. So they didn't vote for the dissolution of the border. They didn't vote for the demilitarization of the, 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 um, of the border areas on the island of Ireland. They didn't vote for the leaving of British troops and who were sent back to England. <laughs> so they didn't vote for any of that. And um, so they they were thrilled actually that the idea that there might be a border back on the island of Ireland, and when um, you know they were kind of baited for a little bit by Boris Johnson, the, the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, and Unionists and Loyalists in general have an interesting relationship historically with Tories and Conservatives in mainland Britain, Great Britain, um, and that is that they they could often because they're conservative on all matters, they would often swing the vote in Westminster toward uh, conservative legislation, whether socially or economically and so forth. So they were of benefit to the Tories, conservatives in, in England and at Westminster for, for a long time. They still are. Um, there, there are a few members, and, they, and they, they, they often would tilt the balance. Uh, the only reason Theresa May became prime minister was because the unionists, uh, the DUP, tipped the balance in her favor. Otherwise, she wouldn't have won. But they often tipped the balance, but then when it comes down to to matters like this, people like Boris Johnson, or historically, the British would often throw them under the bus. So they've often allowed themselves to be used. Um, and they've often believed that by siding with Tories and conservatives, they're going to get what they want, which would be preservation of the precious, precious union, as they call it, and a stronger border and so forth. What they've yeah. gotten instead, because Boris did throw them under the bus, um, thankfully, uh, um, is is they've gotten no border on the island of Ireland um, as a result of Brexit, not even a customs check and so forth. But they have now a border in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. So essentially what's been created is, you know, a United Ireland. But and, you know, complicating the situation, United Michael, complicating the situation is the possibility that Scotland, which is a part of Great Britain, right. uh, that voted against Brexit, may opt to join the EU. The Scottish government believed that staying in the EU was best for Scotland, and uh, and and the EU uh, and the UK pushed the. Uh, uh, the uh, for a second referendum to leave the UK, Scotland would have to call a referendum on independence and then apply for EU membership on its own. So we, we would wind up with a whole other complicated situation there. Um, uh, and, and, and part of the problem for Scotland is fishing. It's a major yeah. source of income. Uh, right. 
Uh, and uh, they've been sailing an extra 45 hours uh, to Denmark, uh, Scottish fishermen, where they get twice as much for their catch. Um, this may have a real interesting impact on the cost of fish and chips in the rest of England. <laughs> yeah, true. And yeah, it's, I mean, the, the, the most uh, lucrative ports, fishing ports in Great Britain um, are in Scotland, for sure. And, you know, of, of, the, of the, the entire Great British um, economy, um, fishing is, is small compared to, say, financial services. You know, um, it, it's small, but it's politically huge. So it's, it's actually a small part of the economy, but um, politically huge also in that, you know, London doesn't want to anger, you know, the, 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 such a strong political force in Scotland. They don't want those fish, fishermen to, to move toward an independent Scotland as well. Um, so it's politically huge, and um, there's been it was actually you know some of the most difficult negotiating that happened at the end of the day um, it, between the EU and and the United Kingdom on Brexit uh, a couple weeks ago. The other interesting thing, so Scotland and Ireland would have a lot um, of affinity, of course, they, you know, cultural and otherwise. And Scotland and Ireland are both Gaelic culturally. Um, they're you know they're both places that were colonized, you could say, by mm. by the um, by the Brits. Um, and there was a lot of cross pollinization. Yes, and the in, in in between Ireland and Scotland. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> and especially the north of Ireland and Scotland, and um, and Donegal and Scotland. Uh, there's always been a lot of cross pollinization. Now, Scottish people have always, you know, there's always been a, an idea that. I guess the more lowland you get, the more you'd be oriented towards English life and 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 uh, and pro-British and so forth. And the more north and and western you went, the more Gaelic you were culturally and so forth, and the more likely to go towards independence. Um, what's interesting now is that there are actually people talking about uh, the idea of Ireland and Scotland forming a kind of Gaelic union <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a member of the European Union. Um, because there are there is a lot of affinity and a lot of you know just cultural and political and so forth, a lot of history in common, and just people going back and forth. I mean, you could I mean you can see Scotland, you know, from Ireland, so from the north of Ireland. Um, so that's interesting. And Scotland, you know, of course, wasn't involved in uh, in in recent years anyway in in, in an armed struggle like the Troubles. Um, but there's always been a strong Scottish Nationalist Party, and in more recent years, we saw it come close. To Scottish independence, I think what was reported on the Scottish independence vote was that they lost, and it was, you know, the narrative was that this is a huge blow to Scottish independence. It was actually pretty close, so I think um, I think that was lost. And what that means now in a post-Brexit world is it would even I, I would say that a majority of people um, would vote toward um, Scotland getting independence from the United Kingdom as well as membership in the European Union. And if the, you know, the, the, the kind of um, the swing vote could be those fishermen and their families and their relatives and their friends and people who sympathize with them. So, so the fishing issue is huge politically, even if it's a small part of the overall Great British economy. As I said, I have to take a little break here. Are gonna, okay, cool. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. If I had the right to 
back with Michael Patrick McDonald, who's a regular contributor to our show. And we're talking about Brexit and its impact on uh, the various parts of, uh, of Great Britain and also Ireland. Uh, hasn't Nigel Farage, who was the Brexit Party leader, said that Joe Biden thinks Brexit is a mistake and, and warned that the UK is facing a difficult period with America now that Biden is president? Has, has yeah, Biden was, said anything specific about Brexit? Um, well, what Biden has said specifically is that um, Brexit, um, that, the, that the United Kingdom, that the British should not threaten um, an ounce of the Good Friday Agreement. And that would mean should not threaten the peace, should not threaten the peace that's been brought about by the dissolution of the border. and The Good Friday Agreement. The whole, Yes, the Good Friday Agreement. So the Good Friday Agreement brought the dissolution of the border on the island of Ireland. Joe Biden, who happens to be, he identifies as Irish Catholic, um, he uh, has always been up to date on politics over there. Um, and he's, you know, he, 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 he's kind of obsessed with his Irish heritage and so forth, um, as we've seen in some reporting Um and he has family over there that have been really, you know, celebrating his win and so forth. So he identifies. And, and keep in mind, I mean, we, we just it, it, it's kind of lost on a lot of people. This is only the second Irish Catholic president in, in U.S. history. So it would be um, and he would be he would probably uh, favor Irish unity, the reunification of Ireland. Um, he would be up on those politics. By contrast, Donald Trump would be much more pro-unionist, um, Nigel for pro-Brexit, pro-Nigel Farage. Donald Trump's mother would be a very strong, well, she'd be Scottish, but very pro-British Union um, and obsessed with the royal family. Farage said what Trump was the most pro-UK president we've seen in 30 years. Yeah, I mean, so the, the Orange Order is the order... Uh, the fraternal brotherhood that maintains Protestant Anglo ascendancy in the north of Ireland. And, and Trump Ireland, loves orange. <laughs> I've always said that he's an orangeman, you know. So, um, and his mother would have been, you know, quite orange leaning in her politics because she would be pro union um, and obsessed with the royal family, obsessed with the the Queen of England, and so forth. And so he would, you know, some of this is heartstring stuff for for him um, and his his connection to his mother and so forth. I believe um, just, you know, his the, the, when he was really infatuated with the, the Queen of England and going to meet with her and kind of messed up in every step and all that. Um, but he, he would be a unionist and he would be very, you know, anti-globalist and, and so forth, as he says. Um, but unionists in the north of Ireland uh, have, you know, they were very pro-Trump in during the American presidential campaign. Huge banners went up that were, you know, uh, Ulster Scots unionist for President Trump, anti no pro Brexit, um, pro border, anti immigrant, um, anti LGBTQ. You know, mm. they put up this whole list of things that they have in common with them, and they do. And so Biden's a whole new game. 
Biden's Irish Catholic. He's very informed uh, of the colonization of Ireland. He would be very pro um, Irish reunification. He threatened, you know, he kind of fired warning shots. He said, do not mess with the Good Friday Agreement. Do not mess with that dissolution of the border that came as a result of the Good Friday Agreement. And if you do mess with it, you will pay um, with the trade negotiations that we're going to do. Because the U.K. has to do, you know, trade negotiations um, with the United States. And they will be hurt if they, um, he's threatened, they will be hurt if they uh, cause any uh, roll back on the Good Friday Agreement and the peace and the dissolution of the border. Incidentally, Nancy Pelosi has said the same thing. There are a lot of people in, in Congress that have, uh, you know, have been strong advocates, like people like Richie Neal in Massachusetts. Um, Richie Neal has brought Nancy Pelosi over to the north. She doesn't have the um, ethnic connection, but she does now, and she's very, very um, devoted to the Good Friday Agreement and to the peace in the north and to the dissolved border. So will the fact that um, yeah will, will the fact that uh, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh has been appointed as Labor Secretary in the, the new Biden administration have an impact? He his parents are from Connemara and he's developed links with Belfast through the Boston Belfast Sister City Project. Right, and you know, being from Boston, I know Marty, and he has been chosen as the Secretary of Labor. Now, the labor movement in the United States has, for a long time, been strongly connected to the movement for United Ireland. And that would be, you know, the grassroots membership. Some of the leadership of particular unions um, have strong ties to Sinn Féin and to the the movement for a United Irish Republic. Um, and so Marty now being Martin Walsh, the mayor, mayor of Boston, current mayor of Boston, becoming Secretary of Labor, that brings, um, you know, an advocate for Irish unity to the top labor position in America. <clears throat> uh, mayor Walsh has a, a strong history himself. You know, he, he ran the um, building trades union um, back in Boston for years and so forth. So he came, he became mayor um, as a labor leader, and now he's becoming the top labor leader in America. He's also, like Joe Biden, very strongly identified as Irish Catholic. And, you know, and when I say Catholic, I also, with, with, with all of this stuff, um, even when I refer to the population in the north of Ireland, I would, you know, that, that's, that, that would be like cultural Catholic. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a strong part of people's cultural identity um, having to do with this history. That's the population that was the native peasant population that was colonized. Although, as we as we discussed in earlier shows, uh, the uh, Republic of Ireland is rather liberal in many ways, uh, as far as abortion is concerned, LGBT rights, etc. Et right. In fact, more liberal than than uh, the Protestant North. You know, some of the vote you see in in the Republic of Ireland around, say, choice or LGBT rights, um, you would not see in some of our most progressive states in Massachusetts, I believe, you know, it, it, they were huge numbers in favor after years of being controlled um, politically by the Catholic Church. So that's also why I want to distinguish um, when I say Catholic, it's, you know, I'm referring to culturally Catholic, which is identifying with the, the historically the colonized peasant Irish native population. Um, they were Catholics. And but it doesn't 
in some cases, it will mean that people are, you know, pro-life and, and that kind of stuff. But, um, but in a lot of cases, it doesn't necessarily mean that. And the Republic of Ireland, it certainly doesn't mean that. Once the Catholic Church lost its stranglehold on that culture in the Republic of Ireland, the numbers that you see coming out after years of oppression and repression, not only by the Brits, but also by the Catholic Church, you see people um, coming out in strong numbers for uh, socially progressive measures. And, and this has also impacted the conversation in the North because you have this model of progressive um, progressive culture in the, in the South, in the Republic of Ireland, I would say. Um, not just down the road from people in, in the North, some, some of those young people who are children of evangelical Protestant Unionist loyalists who are looking just down the road and, you know, they might themselves be gay and, or, or be a woman and seeing down the road that um, people have a lot more rights than they do. See, the Protestant Unionist loyalist um, ascendancy in the north of Ireland has uh, maintained a very conservative state, a state that's more conservative than the south of Ireland at this point, but also more conservative than the rest of the United Kingdom. And that's been allowed, of course, by the United Kingdom um, because they're given a certain amount of, um, of uh, you know, right to de- devolved government. So the, 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 the whole issue of, um, you know, Northern Ireland's part of the United Kingdom, but they're given a certain amount of decision-making over things like social um, legislation. And as a result, they're the most conservative part of the United Kingdom and the most conservative part of the the island of Ireland, but that is the fault of the um, the evangelical Protestant kind of stranglehold in the north. So, meanwhile, down the road in the south, in the Republic of Ireland, again, you have a you know culturally Catholic um, country, even if it's not controlled by the church anymore. And this Catholic identified country is actually very progressive, and so young people see that. And by young, I mean anyone under. No, 50. <laughs> so, um, so that's had a huge impact on people's thinking in the North uh, toward becoming part of a United Ireland. And when we talk about a United Ireland, it's also important to point out that we're not talking about just the North, about the Northern Six Counties being kind of bolted on to the state that exists in the South. We talk about kind of creating a new Ireland. That's always been the term that's used, creating a new Ireland. So it wouldn't be just about kind of bolting them on. They'd have to be decision-making island-wide. And that, that would also have to accommodate, um, in a lot of ways, for this Protestant, British-identified uh, population in the north of Ireland. But they'll no longer be able to maintain this kind of minority stranglehold on a huge part of the island. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm speaking with Michael Patrick McDonald about, uh, well, Brexit and its impact on the United Kingdom and and its neighbors. Uh, But since Brexit has changed London's status as a global financial center, could that mean that London's loss might be New York City's gain? I, th- I think so, um, but also, and I, I, you know, I pointed out the English-speaking aspect, and that's, you know, that's unfortunate that that's the measure. But 
It is, and and of course, it it will it, it could mean a gain for Dublin. It will definitely mean gain for New York City. But also, I was I was watching you know Shashi Thoreau, um in an interview uh, this week, and he was talking about some of the gain um, in India, and of course, mm-hmm. India also as a result of colonized British colonization um, is an English speaking place, and <clears throat> you know Shashi Thoreau is no fan of Great Britain, and it was really interesting to see in the interview just the amount of kind of um, just confidence. I don't think anyone um, anyone is kind of cowering to British might in the way that um, that that you you'd always assume that. I mean, throughout my whole life, I've always always assumed that they have the upper hand. They just seem to have the lesser hand in every situation. And so whether in um, U.S. trade negotiations, <clears throat> Irish trade negotiations with the U.K., or Indian uh, trade negotiations with the U.K., it's just interesting to see that shift. And it's a result of, it's a result of the politics of supremacy in a lot of ways. So it's the politics of supremacy that's led to this kind of um, you know, dissolution of, of uh, British power in the world. And, you know, they're not going to have the upper upper hand. Now, they would when they had allies like um, Trump in the White House. It's a different story. But, you know, he's he's gone. Hopefully, knock on wood tomorrow. <clears throat> and um, and uh, they just don't have that kind of, you know, so they, people often refer to the Tories and conservatives who brought about Brexit as little Englanders. You know, in the past, little Englanders meant people who were opposed to British colonization of the globe. Um, but these days, little Englanders are people that are just like, you know, glomming on to, let's, you know, like America firsters. It's, it's just, you know, um, Britain for the, for, the, for the English, basically. So um, it's, it's caused a shrinking of their power and might and their upper hand that they've had for so long um, since British colonization. There's so much backlash now happening. Um, when you think about some of the people that they're going to have to go to to um, negotiate trade agreements, a lot of these people are people that Britain has caused harm to uh, for centuries, and so that's going to be interesting to see the dynamics of that. I mean, when it was when it had a, a, its colonies, yeah, former colonies and common, you know, even current Commonwealth people, um, where there even in a lot of the Commonwealth there's a strong, um, you know, anti. Um, colonial sentiment and people trying to even break away from that. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see them negotiating with their former, you know, the people that they basically raped uh, <laughs> and pillaged for a long time. So um, I don't know. A lot of people in Ireland are kind of looking forward to seeing all of that as well. Well, can't there be long-term effects uh, of, of Brexit for the United States in other ways? Because the pound has seriously weakened which makes U.S. exports to the U.K. more expensive. Right. Um, well, so I, I think that... Um, and then there are issues about agriculture. Uh, we have different standards, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, as I understand it, the U.K. requires greater food safety and animal welfare regulations than the United States, and, and U.K. farmers are concerned about inferior, cheaper agriculture products, putting them out of business. I. I'm assuming that might change a bit after after Joe Biden becomes president. 
But also there's been a little bit of a shift in that, too. So uh, you know, Brexiteers would tend to be people who want less regulations. So one of the um, motivations for Brexit, was, you know, from, from capitalist Brexiteers was to remove um, regulations. The EU has pretty strong regulations, and that's why uh, the U.K. had – and the U.K. probably still would have stronger regulations than we do, and that could change with Biden. But the EU is way more – um, way more strict in its regulations of, uh, you know, animal products and, and so forth, food. And, um, and so that, that kind of was a big incentive for the Brexit vote, at least among, you know, the, the captains of industry. And so one of the issues now be- with, between EU and, and the UK in terms of the negotiations is how to deal with that. It's because the EU is going to have stricter regulations than the UK wants. The UK wants... The, the, People that won the Brexit vote, they want no regulations on foods. So they're, they're, as a result, the EU is going to be um, more closely scrutinizing any food pr- products that, that, that arrive on their mm-hmm. shores. Um, also, so that's going to cause more paperwork and more bureaucracy and more, um, you know, withering on the vine that happens in these long waits um, at the border and so forth in, in the trucks. Um Michael, we have just a few minutes left, and I want to ask you about one other thing. Uh, is this unique? Is this unique to the area we're discussing? Aren't members of right-wing anti-immigration parties against the EU in in France and Germany? Uh, is there a possibility they could force an anti-EU vote? Right, and you know, also I, with the vote that happened in France, like we can't underestimate the. That um, Marie, that Le Pen got a huge, pretty significant vote. So, hmm. so in, in Germany and France, we are seeing rising anti-globalism, anti, um, anti-immigrant, and even out-fascist movements uh, on the rise. And so, this is this is what we're facing, and this is what Joe Biden's facing, um, because the EU is a strong partner to the U.S. Uh, globally, and um, we need we're going to need to not only fight it at home. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, squashing all the, the, the conspiracy theories and so forth, but we're going to have to fight it abroad as well. But uh, in, a, in a Pew Research Center survey across 10 European countries, almost 75 percent say that the EU promotes peace, 55 percent believe mm-hmm. it supports prosperity, and more than one third see the role of the UK as diminishing. Oh, it is. It is absolutely diminishing. And I think Ireland, back to Ireland, Ireland's going to be a model of a place that, you know, Ireland's increasingly open after years, again, after a whole history of being colonized, being closed in a lot of ways culturally by the, the Catholic Church that took off where the Brits left, left them. Um, and Ireland's going to be, I think, a model because Ireland doesn't have that kind of, you know, it just doesn't take off that fascist, anti immigrant sentiment and so forth. The bait is, you know, the the bait is attempted, but the people aren't going for it for the most part. That doesn't mean we can rest easily. Um, But Ireland could be a model. And I think that the stronger that Ireland gets in the European community as a result of Brexit, I think the better off um, the European Union will be um, because they really are kind of a, a, a beacon at this point. So I think it, it, their strength is going to benefit um EU culture overall. Is it your sense that uh, people in the UK are 
uh, now regretting the vote. The, they now have to negotiate new trade agreements with countries outside the EU, which had more than 40 trade agreements with 70 countries already in place. And the UK has to pay a divorce bill of 25 billion pounds by 2057 to fulfill any remaining financial commitments that it, uh, were made while it was still a member of the EU. Yes, increasingly. And, and the more you see it, you're seeing that sentiment increase among you know, a lot of the people who voted who are from the working class because they're going to be the most impacted. So a lot of the people that voted for uh, Brexit are going to be the most impacted in their wallets. And, um, and so you're going to see an increase in anti-Brexit uh, sentiment how the likes of Nigel Farage and, and that population, the more elite Brexiteers, um, deal with that and their messaging is going to be interesting because what will happen, of course, is that they'll they'll you know, they'll blame they'll blame the European Union. They'll blame they'll blame everything but Brexit already and, in the north of Ireland. You're seeing um, a lot of uh, the Protestant unionist loyalist population that were pro Brexit. Um, uh, changing their their opinions on that because they're and, and the DUP is ahead of that. The DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, that that worked for Brexit, is already starting to you know blame everything but Brexit for you know the the diminishing so, or they're exaggerating a lot of the impact for one Michael. thing, saying that you know there's there's nothing on the shelves and so forth, and they're going to blame everything but Brexit. I got to leave it there, unfortunately. Michael Patrick McDonald, thank you so much. We'll see you again real soon. Hopefully in person. And that brings us to the end of the show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on any of our shows or just want to say hello, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to just take a, a minute to ask you for your support for WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going to give to wbai.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth contact we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We need your help to keep this historic station, the only one in the New York City radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored on the air. So all you have to do is call 516-620-3602 or go to online to give to WBAI.org to keep Leonard Lopate at Large coming to you on BAI weekdays from 1 to 2 and from all of us at the station to everyone who has contributed so far, thanks. We are preempted tomorrow for WBI's special inauguration day coverage, but we hope you'll join us again on Thursday when Tim Ward will discuss his new book called Pro-Truth, The Practical Plan for Putting Truth Back into Politics. We'll see you then.